Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 14, these series of chapters that have had us looking at the spiritual gifts, the, these charismatic gifts. And one of the things that I haven't really spent a whole lot of time with is the healing power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about this on Thursday in our special topic as I respond to some of your questions. But I did want to spend a little bit of time this evening talking about the healing power of the Spirit, because really it is foundational to uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14. And it's probably something I should have talked about at the beginning of chapter 12, because when you talk about the charismatic and spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit, we should have in the rearview mirror this deeper understanding that the Holy Spirit is what brings healing into our lives, okay? Now, the charismatic gifts in of themselves are really about building up the body of Christ, right? Bringing about conversion. This is going to be something we talk about later this evening. But what is foundational is to understand that in so many ways, the healing power of the Holy Spirit is what the life of God is all about. I mean, if you were to go to Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, what do we read? He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. This was the Holy Spirit. Luke said it once and for all. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, if you go back to chapter 5, verse 17, then Jesus filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, the dynamua of God, he returned to Galilee, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So this power, which is the Holy Spirit, still now, today, comes to us. And this is something we should be reflecting upon because we are still in the Easter season, right? Until Pentecost, we are still in the Easter season. And now that he is resurrected, he is declared to be the Son of God with what does Paul say in chapter 1, verse 4? With power according to the spirit of holiness. Now, this power just doesn't heal one person, okay? This power just doesn't heal a group of people. This power heals everybody, everybody. And this is the decisive point we need to understand. And for all of you listening out there, pray for the grace to believe right now. We should say, as Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, today, Scripture has been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit 
doesn't have uh, uh, problems with numbers. You think about it, a human doctor in front of a crowd of people with many and varied ailments would probably throw up his arms and say he was quite simply unable to heal everybody before him. But not the Holy Spirit. In this vein of thinking, uh, the popular theologian you've heard me quote before, Father Kento de Mesa says, Just as the sun can bring light to one person or to a billion people, so too the Holy Spirit can do the same in the spiritual realm. I absolutely love that image. So in this stream of healing more than one person, by way of image, Father Kento de Mesa says, Just as the sun can bring light to one person or to a billion people, so too the Holy Spirit can do the same in the spiritual realm. Brothers and sisters, we should expect healing. Paul says, ask for healing. We should expect healing. And it is not some hear the Word of God and that others want to be healed of their infirmities. We cannot accept that kind of fragmented picture or that kind of truncated picture. What does the text that I just read say? They had come to hear him and be healed. We need to have both, right? We need to hear the word of God and to be healed of our infirmities, or even better, to be healed precisely by listening to the word of God, the inspired word of God. In fact, it is the word that heals. What does scripture say? What is it? Wisdom chapter 16, verse 12, for neither herb nor poultice, which is just a a fancy word meaning plaster, right? Cured them, but it was your word, O Lord, that heals all people. We, along with the Roman centurion, articulate what at every mass? Only say the word and I shall be healed. Okay, why are we talking about healing? Well, is this not what lies at the heart of our salvation? The root word to salvation is what? Save, this kind of healing balm, this kind of healing ointment. We are healed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And out from this same power comes what? But of course, the charismatic and spiritual gifts. So once we understand that what we are dealing with is that which is a part of our salvation, certainly, my friends, we should urgently desire, as Paul says, the charismatic gifts. Because why? They not only build up the body of Christ, but as they bring about conversion, it brings about, that is, the charismatic gifts, salvation for others. Don't you see now why, my friends, these charismatic gifts are so important? These gifts of the Holy Spirit are so important. If we have that laser-like focus that God wants us to have, then all we will be concerned about is what? But the salvation of all peoples. And one of the things that's happened today is we have minimized the message of Jesus Christ. We have watered down the message of Jesus Christ. We say that other gods are equal to the one true God. But what did Jesus Christ say himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life, right? Jesus Christ is speaking in the imperative and absolute sense. 
If we believe Jesus Christ at His Word, what does that mean for you and I? Well, A, we need to start getting serious about our Christian Catholic faith, and B, that we should go out and proclaim this in word and deed, urgently desiring the charismatic gifts, building up the body of Christ, bringing more people into the church, and of course, all doing this in a humble love, a, a love full of humble confidence, okay? All that being said, <laughs> let us now jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I will go ahead and get us going with, oh, let's see here. Where did we leave off? Verse 19. I will read verses 20 to 25. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church assembles and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophecy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He will declare that God is really among you. So, here we have in, in verse 20 what? Brothers, stop being childish in your thinking. You know, George Montague in his commentary notes, and, and I thought this to be very important, there is a difference between childlike and being childish, huh? The value that the Corinthians place on tongues, and here we are dealing with what? The uninterpreted tongues, right? As a higher, more divine gift than any of the word gifts shows that their thinking is what? Childish immature, like the thinking of those who create cliques by clinging to one preacher over another, as he was talking about in the opening chapters. Remember that discussion we, where we have that tendency to go to one particular preacher over and above the other? In terms of your moral life, Paul says, be innocent like infants, but in your thinking be mature. What does this mean? That means to begin to see things in their proper light, in their proper scope. That means thinking of the effect of their actions on others. In so many ways here, St. Paul is talking about and calling out the virtue of prudence. Because remember, that cardinal virtue of prudence is really a virtue that looks into the future. The word itself means sagaciousness or sagacity. The word sagacity means acute awareness. So the cardinal virtue of prudence has that acute awareness into the outcome of this particular act. The cardinal virtue of prudence asks the question, what is going to be the impact of this decision? If I do this or if I do that, what is going to be the consequence? Is, is there going to be a good impact or a bad impact? Is it going to benefit the body of Christ, or is it going to break down the body of Christ? Am I doing this to protect myself or to protect someone else? We have to ask those questions 
And does this not call for the virtue of recollection, that virtue of drawing back? Where in the drawing back, you are asking new questions. What is the meaning of this moment? What are you calling me to in this moment? How, Lord, are you calling me to understand this encounter? What decisions should I make? Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's home. Maybe you're working out. We are faced with practical decisions, hundreds of them every day. And God calls us to sanctify those moments, sanctify those decisions with what? Prudential judgment, where you take into account what you're about to do and ultimately its impact. And let me say something else, my friends, not to chase a rabbit in the hole here, (laughs) but if you are suffering and you are in a place where you just don't think you care about what other people think, can I not encourage you and invite you humbly to pray to God for the grace and the strength to gather yourself before you make a decision that is going to impact the body of Christ negatively? Please, I know it is all but impossible to apply logic and reason when you are suffering so greatly. I get that. And when you are suffering greatly, it's hard to think about the decisions you are making and how it's impacting the people around you. But if I could ever so gently invite you to consider the importance of what God is calling you to and to really take your suffering and to unite it with the one suffering of Christ for your sake and for the sake of the body of Christ. This is very important. God allows certain things for reasons that are very mysterious, but in faith we proclaim There is a reason why, and certainly Scripture attests to this. If you struggle with this, look upon the crucifix. Look upon Christ crucified. Meditate upon Christ crucified. You can actually pray yourself out of your suffering when you meditate upon Christ crucified. Not that your suffering is without redemptive power, but in giving it to Christ, you might be born anew in Him that you might actually begin to see that there is a divine plan for everything that has, has come your way. Okay? All right. So this call we have to, in the light of verse 20, to take stock in, into our actions and to be mature, right? And do we not imitate Christ in this way? Recall the narrative of Mary finding Jesus in the temple right there at the end of Luke chapter 2, what do we read? That he went home with Mary and Joseph, and he grew in wisdom and stature, okay? We do the same when we are obedient to the law of God, huh? Okay, how about this verse, if everyone is prophesying and an unbeliever, uninstructed person should come in, he will be convinced by everyone and judged by everyone. What is going on there? Well, What Paul means by this is not that the community would condemn the unbeliever, but that God, through the gift of prophecy, would convince the person of his sins. The judgment would lead to what? Conversion. That all-important word, conversion. What lies at the heart of the gospel, my friends? What lies at the heart of the good news, the transforming message? Repent and believe the good news. Repent. The Greek there, metanoia which is just not being contrite for your sins, contrition, okay, but at the same time being resolved to change 
In fact, one is the consequence of the other. If you are truly contrite of your sin, if you are truly sorrowful for how, how you have offended God, then you should be resolved to change. I think of my own home and my children. I know my son is genuinely uh, sorry for what he has done. If I see a, a firm resolve, and God bless my oldest son on the norm, he is very genuine and typically firmly resolved to change. Great kid. Great kid. God wants us to see that as sons and daughters of God, we need to be genuine in our contrition, in our contrition. This is a grace too, by the way. You pray for the grace for contrition itself. And out from that, yeah, you will be firmly resolved. The metanoia, by the way, the actual translation is this change in direction. So you are now following a new path, heading in a new direction. So you're no longer looking back at your old ways, but looking forward, following the path of Jesus Christ. Did we not already recount John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life? He is the way. So now that you have Jesus before you, you follow that path. Even if it is a path less traveled, it is one that has been traveled by Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, you, you follow that path. So conversion if you were to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 to 12, what do we read there? We won't get into all those verses now, but is this not, in everything that we are talking about right now, is this not what Nathan did for David? He revealed his adultery, the significance of his murder, and what happened? Well, <laughs> conversion. Conversion. So, in the history of the church, we have had saints and confessors that have brought about profound conversion through prophetic utterances. Here I'm thinking of St. John Vianney and Padre Pio, two mystics who were able to read hearts. Incredible accounts with these two. In point of fact, I, I was going through some other readings as I was uh, prepping this evening, and I uh, went back to a, a work titled God's Healing Mercy by Kathleen Beckman, and she recounts one of these encounters with St. John Vianney. And, and I wanted to read this. This one is striking. I don't know if you are familiar with St. John Vianney or uh, St. Padre Pio, but as I just noted, uh, these two saints, among others, had, well, profound gifts. Again, the ability to read hearts. Listen to this case. Uh, now, again, just for way of background, St. John Vianney, who is the patron saint of priests, by the way, was a pastor at a parish in Ars, France. And besides teaching and, and, and preaching and caring for the poor, people often attested to um, the many hours he spent in the confessional. Now, this is Kathleen Beckman on this one particular account. One day, a woman made her way to the parish. Seeing lines of people waiting to go to confession, she asked one of them the estimated wait time. About three days, was the reply. The woman could not wait, so she made her way into the church and up to the communion rail, where she got down on her knees and began to pray. The saintly pastor finished the confession he was hearing and excused himself to the next penitent. He walked over to the woman and said, 
he will be saved. The woman did not believe him. It turns out that the distressed woman's husband had been an official in the French Revolution. He arrived at the point of despair, made his way to a bridge, jumped off, and died shortly after hitting the water. So she was rightly concerned about his eternal salvation. St. John Vianney, who did not know this woman, explained that between the bridge and the water, the man had made an act of contrition. The widow was understandably baffled, as her husband had not lived a Catholic life on earth. The curia of ours asked her, St. John Vianney asked her, Do you remember when you put up the shrine to our Blessed Mother in your home? Yes, she replied. Did he stand in the way? No, she responded. Well, it was through that act of openness that the Lord worked and prompted him just before his death to make that act of contrition. (laughs) I mean, how astounding is that? And quite frankly, I don't know (laughs) what is greater here. The fact that St. John Vianney knew what he knew, which again is an extraordinary charismatic gift or the greatness of God's mercy. Through one simple act, God saved that man. Through one simple act, not only did God save that man, but also (laughs) in St. John Vianney coming to this woman, did she experience a profound and deeper conversion. Okay, so prophetic utterances, and we can also say here in this case, words of knowledge given to particular people, and in this case, St. John Vianney, bring about conversion. And this really is the essential point in these paragraphs, because what do we read uh, here in verse 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25? The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You know, when you encounter God, when you encounter Christ, there is just a sense of being overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but I've had a few experiences of my, in my life where in encountering the greatness of God's mercy, the greatness of God's love for me, who is nothing but a sinner, I have just been overwhelmed. All I could get myself to do is to fall on my face before our Lord, before our blessed sacrament, praising God for His goodness, praising God for His mercy, mindful that even in the midst of whatever trial I might be going through, that trial was a gift to me because it brought me closer to Him. And so for Paul, as prophecy is about bringing conversion, it is conversion that in the end orders proper worship. So this is why he then gets into orderly worship in verses 26 and following. In verses 26 and following, we we read, What then, brethren, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is one to interpret, let let each of them keep silence in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting by, let the first be silent. 
For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So here in these verses, Paul lays out three pastoral guidelines, we could say, for speaking in tongues. First, that only a few should exercise the gift at each assembly, lest there be a pandemonium, right? Second, they should speak in sequence, not simultaneously. And third, the utterances should be interpreted. So Paul wants us to understand that in the end, the charismatic gifts are about order, revealing the truth, beauty, and goodness of God. All should be edified. And what word do you think about when you hear the word edified? Peace. That sense of peace washing over you, where you are no longer caught up in the trivial affairs of the world, not that you remove yourself from them, but you are brought into the very life and harmony of God, which is concrete. When we encounter God and the truth, beauty, and goodness of God, it is real. It is a tangible. And in faith, what happens is it, in a very concrete and particular way, begins to change the way we go about living our day. In the end, my friends, this is what St. Paul is after. He is catechizing them on the charismatic gifts, and in, in particular this chapter, and in this chapter, the gift of tongues and prophecy, so that they might have a deeper understanding of how to better live the faith, how to better instruct others. And as he anchored these charismatic and spiritual gifts in love in chapter 13, to do so in love, to do so in agape love, divine sacrificial love. So as we go through these verses in chapter 14, there is a reason why Paul is attentive to the detail, because he is meeting them where they are at. A, a huge point that we just need to spend more time with. St. Paul is catechizing them on something because there is confusion among the people, among the Corinthians. Can we not apply this truth today? Should we not be catechizing on matters where there is confusion. I was talking with someone yesterday evening, and uh, we were talking about this very thing, and he said, well, what is the one thing, Joe, that then we need to be catechizing on, teaching on? And I said, well, that's, that's pretty simple. Who we are as created in the image and likeness of God in our anthropology. In other words, we need to be catechizing on our anthropology, specifically as it applies to our sexuality because there's a lot of confusion. And we have the gift that is the treasure of St. John Paul II's writings to turn to, and the many commentators who have distilled in layman terms the rich insights of St. John Paul II. And so if you're asking the question this evening, okay, Joe, what is the one thing we need to be thinking about today? If, if 2,000 years ago for the Church of Corinth it was the charismatic gifts, what is that today? Well, anthropology, a deeper understanding of who we are in our sexuality, body and soul, and what that means in our sexuality. Anyhow, we will stop there and uh, pick up with, what, verse 34 tomorrow. Again, if you have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to uh, send me those. You can 
go to my email at jholljmj at yahoo.com or you can go to my website at joholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your question, a message, observation on its way. I love to receive your questions. I love to engage you. As I've said before, it's a real highlight for me here on Seeds of Truth to get to know new people who are not only from the local area and diocese, but outside the state and even in some cases outside the country. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.